welcome, fellow traveller, to the Tent Talks podcast, where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social, and political imagination. Welcome, friends. This is Tent Talks. My name is Chris Marchand. This is a new series from Tent Talks, and the title is straightforward. Women in Church Leadership. The premise of the series is simple. Talk with a set of women in leadership within the church and ask them the same set of questions. Let them tell their stories and experiences and see what kind of narrative thread emerges. This is episode one, Disrespect. I speak with women from different church backgrounds and who grew up in different regions of the United States. Two of them are ordained ministers, Two work within academia and are published in prolific authors and speakers. One of the ordained ministers is a leader in her own denomination and also publishes her own material and liturgical resources. And one is a researcher who is also working to bring justice and healing to people who have suffered church abuse. As I've observed the swirling online conversations surrounding abuse within the church and the way women have consistently been treated, one of the ongoing pleas I've seen from women is the continuously repeated request that they simply be allowed to tell their own stories, to give them voice and place, and to believe them. This series is my modest attempt to create a place for a conversation like that. Before we go any further, allow me to offer an explanation. I want to acknowledge from the start what this series is not. It is in no way comprehensive. The stories of these four women cannot possibly represent the experiences of all women within the church. When I began planning the series, I made a long list of who I would like to interview, and it was well over 10 women. I wanted to get Beth Moore, but that just didn't seem like it was in the cards. This was my short list. It could have been much longer. My hope is that the stories of these four women will be enough, at least for now, that any woman listening to it will be able to relate their own stories to theirs. But I also must acknowledge there are no women of color represented here. What I began to realize as the interviews came together is that I was working out my own story in context as a man within white middle-class evangelical churches in America, and also as a male pastor and priest. One of the women that I interview is a personal friend when we graduated from the same college, though at different times. One of the women grew up in the Assemblies of God, a Pentecostal denomination I claim as a major part of my own faith heritage. One of the women is a fellow Anglican priest, but partially grew up in the Baptist tradition, which is my wife's own tradition. And another of the women grew up in a highly toxic patriarchal church slash cult that parallels the experiences of many women I've pastored over the years who attended a similar church that used to be prominent in my area in Illinois. So I admit to the limitations of my interviews and at the same time offer them to you as a way of working out my own story and my place within the body of Christ, especially as an ordained minister, a calling that many, many women are still completely denied from pursuing in their own traditions. Oh, kings, hear a song that reaches the Lord, a woman standing tall to Quaked and trembled, the sky bled 
say this. I don't feel particularly brave in bringing you this series, even though it could possibly get me into trouble within my own church leadership in the Anglican Church of North America, where most women are not blessed to become priests and only some can become deacons. I know that most of the world looks in on all of our church squabbles and scandals and shakes their heads at our general idiocy. Our, our firmly putting of our heads in the sand regarding the place of women in the most vital community that we have as Christians, the church, the body of Christ. They look on at our foundational prejudice towards women and just walk away from it all. They don't need this. When men have messed up things for so long and women are so undeniably gifted in ministering and leading others, why again are they not given equal place among men within church leadership? I know people on the outside of the church are asking that question. But I especially know women and many men are asking that question as well from within the church. So I don't feel brave or like I deserve any credit for bringing you this series. But I do hope the stories of these four women can help to answer that perplexing and maddening question I just asked and also point to a future in the church that is vastly different from where we are at today. One last thing before I let these women introduce themselves. Growing up for me, the traditions I found myself in, which would have been Catholicism, general evangelicalism, American evangelicalism, and more specifically, Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement. There was no question if any of the women I am talking to in these interviews could become church leaders. In the context I grew up in, the resounding answer was no. They could teach Sunday school, they could become children's pastors, music leaders, worship leaders, or they could become missionaries, and they could serve in numerous capacities in local and parachurch ministries. But most likely, they couldn't become church elders. Were they given actual authority? Would they ever be allowed in a pulpit to preach and to teach? Could they be anointed and set aside for service within the body of Christ? Could they consecrate and celebrate communion at the Lord's table? No, that was not to be considered. These things were out of the question and no access was given to them. It was against the Bible. It was not fitting. It would go against God's original intention for creation, which extends not only to church leadership, but perhaps most fundamentally to male headship within our family systems and structures. And yet, growing up, my life was surrounded by strong, capable, brilliant, loving, and yes, authoritative women. I knew something was off. I knew they deserved their place amidst God's people, along with any man. So let's hear some of their stories. Let's hear from women who, in my context, would never have been allowed to obtain the positions they currently have and who yet seem to currently be doing tremendously well. Some might even say they're doing exactly what God has called them to do and are blessed in doing it. So here they are. I'll let them introduce themselves. My name's Abby Nye. 
I am an archivist at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. I grew up at Christian Fellowship Center, which is a Quiverfield church in rural upstate New York. I'm the oldest of nine children. Because of the abuse that I experienced as a child, I am passionate about advocating for other abuse survivors in the church, and that led me to join ACNA 2, and more recently to help found CFC 2, which is a community of survivors from my childhood church. My name is Joy Qualls, and I am an associate professor and associate dean at Biola University, uh, which is in La Mirada, California, just outside of Los Angeles. I'm a rhetorician by training, which means I'm a scholar who studies how we talk about things. But I also serve as a member of the teaching team at our family's church, as well as at two other churches, one here in the Los Angeles area and one in Colorado. I am a wife to Kevin, who is also a college professor, and we have two kids, Blakely and Soren. So I'm Emily McGowan. I am assistant professor of theology at Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois. I teach theology classes there, uh, everything from our intro level theology course that all students have to take to more specialized courses in systematic and historical theology. I also do electives on the problem of evil and gender and theology. I'm also a priest in the Anglican Church in North America. I'm in the Diocese of Churches for the Sake of Others with Bishop Todd Hunter, and I serve as one of his canon theologians, which is just a fancy word for I'm sort of an on-call theologian for my bishop when he needs it. Uh, And then I also am a, a writer. I've got a scholarly book out on the Quiverful Movement, and I have a popular book coming out shortly on the season of Christmas and edited volume with a friend on a wonder and God. And then I'm a mom, a wife and mom. I've got three kids, um, 13, 12, and nine. And I'm married to a priest, uh, Ronnie, who's also in ministry. I'm April McClure Stewart. I am the pastor of a little church here in Peoria, Memorial Christian Church. We usually just call it MCC Peoria. It's a Christian church, Disciples of Christ church. A very small congregation of um, about 25 active members, and then my family of eight added on to it. Uh, Our denomination is fairly progressive, I would say, especially um, the clergy and ordained people and the people in leadership tend to be fairly progressive. Our congregations tend to be a little bit more conservative, but um, women in ministry is nothing new for our denomination. We were ordaining women in the 1880s, 1870s. And with that, we come to our first question. What is a pivotal moment in your life when you realized you were being mistreated, skeptically questioned, disbelieved, ignored, or your skills disrespected by someone in a church setting because you are a woman? We begin with Abby Nye, who offered her own jarringly personal answer. This pivotal moment for me actually happened during my wedding ceremony. I had walked down the aisle at Light of Christ Anglican Church in Kenosha, Wisconsin. My father put my hand in my husband's and he said, I now transfer the headship to you. I was 27. I had a graduate degree. I had the sort of a successful career. But my father, who's also ordained, chose to treat me like a piece of property on my wedding day. 
And while Father Eric Olson, who was performing the ceremony, uh, wouldn't phrase things quite that strongly, it's not like my dad really said anything that significantly differed from the position on gender hierarchy in the Diocese of the Upper Midwest. The show must go on. You don't want to interrupt your wedding day. Um, so it was kind of like a, a, a jolt in the stomach, kind of just like that ooh, feeling. And then, you know, consciously choosing to put that aside and move on. It's not like it was really surprising to me that happened. I and mean, this is my dad. I know him pretty well. But the choice to to do that during the wedding ceremony was really disturbing. And I don't honestly know how I wish I would have handled it. The Abbey of today, uh, almost 10 years later, probably would have made more of a fuss. But also what bride wants to interrupt her carefully planned wedding ceremony to be like, time out, let's address this. By the time I got married, I certainly was not in that headspace where I thought of myself as under the headship of my father. But at that point, you know, this was before I started therapy and started realizing the full extent of the, the damage that had been caused um, by my family. At that point, I still wanted to keep the peace. And it was like, uh, well, I disagree with this. You know, I don't really want my father to walk me down the aisle, but this is the, this is the thing people do. So I'm just going to, to do it. Um, so I was, uh, I, I didn't push back, even though I disagreed. Um, and then as, as the subsequent years have gone by and I've learned more about myself, learned more about my childhood experiences and just seen see more, I suppose, I have become much more comfortable with speaking out and finding my voice. In that moment, I think it was, I don't know that I would use the word demoralizing. I think the word I would use is sickened. And perhaps that does speak a little bit to the strength that I didn't take it to heart, but that my response was, you gross dad, how can you do that to me? was led to answer the question by recounting her initial calling into church ministry. Yeah, so there's there's so many of these. <laughs> it's sometimes hard to pick. I think the most the most pivotal is probably when I was was a teenager. I I became a Christian as a I was between 14 and 15 and I was not raised in a Christian home. I encountered the gospel through a youth group in a sort of Rick Warren style, purpose-driven church. And over the course of six months, I was converted to Christ. And shortly after, was very interested in biblical questions, theological questions. I just had a voracious appetite for those things. And as I imagined my future vocation, whatever that would be, I began to watch my pastor on Sunday morning and think, I'd really love to do what he does. I would love to teach other people about Jesus. So I very innocently uh, approached my youth pastor, again, having no background to any of these conversations, and said, I think maybe I want to be a pastor someday. And his response was, well, women can't be pastors. You can marry a pastor if you want to, but women women aren't allowed to be pastors. 
And it was the first time that I can think of in my awareness that my being a woman made a difference as a, as a Christian. I had, again, sort of been blissfully unaware of the history of, of women in Christianity. And I didn't know that ordination was a controversial thing uh, within the Baptist church I was attending. Um, and so that was sort of a, a slap in the face of, of realizing, oh, it makes a difference that I'm a woman Christian rather than just a Christian. And so my male colleagues, colleagues, my male, you know, friends uh, who had similar uh, interests or sense of, of vocation didn't encounter the same response. They were very quickly encouraged, elevated, given opportunities to to talk to the youth group, to teach small groups, that sort of stuff. So that was, I think, probably the most pivotal experience. I'm thankful that it didn't stop me from pursuing theological or biblical education. But it did certainly derail me for a while in terms of pursuing that pastoral vocation. I, I went the academic route in large part because I thought the pastorate was close to me. The first time I became aware of Emily's work was when she published an article called If Women Can Be Saved, Then Women Can Be Priests, with the site Anglican Compass, formerly Anglican Pastor. It was a biblical and theological defense of women being ordained for ministry. While I certainly remember gaining a lot from her article, what I remember even more was the online backlash and derision given toward her writing, much of it stemming from male church leaders. I've always wondered how she personally responded to that moment of having to face so much public scrutiny. The online scrutiny is pretty significant, uh, for sure. There's not a lot of, in fact, there's not any benefit of the doubt given. If you are a woman writing about theology in public, and certainly if you're going to say something in support of women's ordination, all bets are off. <laughs> and so, you, yeah, there were multiple posts in response to my to my writing. And I have to say that particular piece, I think I was rather naive, actually, when I wrote it. I had had the idea for that. I wrote it in an evening when I was waiting for my daughter to get out of dance class and sent it off thinking some people might be encouraged by this. I was genuinely thinking of the women within the Anglican tradition who needed another way of thinking about it. It didn't even occur to me, <laughs> which shows you my naivete. It didn't occur to me that I would get so much uh, backlash from the more traditional conservative side of things. And uh, do I have thick skin? The honest answer is no, I don't. I, I don't. I, I am more used to the online stuff now, even in the years since that piece was published. And so I kind of take it with a grain of salt if there are no substantive critiques or engagements with my work. If it's just someone who's mad at me and saying I'm not a real priest, I can kind of ignore that. But there does come a point where it just builds up and you're like, man. I'm I'm really just trying to like be faithful to Jesus. <laughs> Can we just you do your thing and I do my thing and we just trust Jesus to work it out, you know. Coming from a tradition that affirms women as pastors, April's experience of being called into church ministry could not have been more different than Emily's. So I grew up in Eureka, Illinois and attended the Eureka Christian Church there. Eureka is a town that was founded by disciples who came up from Kentucky and wanted to um, found a place where their abolitionist views could be uh, exercised. 
And so they founded a college there and a church. And the college was or is affiliated with the Disciples of Christ. The church that I grew up in is very much a college church. Mm -hmm. The professors who were part of the college were uh, part of the congregation. And so therefore, it tended to be fairly progressive. When I grew up, I thought that all disciples were like that. But disciples are congregational polity. So none of the disciples are like that. They're all their own unique thing. But I grew up in a church that was very welcoming, very loving, always had a place for me. And I really felt best about myself when I was in the church. When I was a junior in high school, we went on a mission trip. And the mission trip happened to coincide with a history presentation by um, the Disciples of Christ Historical Society. And we were sitting within the sill stones of the first Disciples of Christ Church, which came off of the Presbyterian's influence in the West Virginia, Pennsylvania, at a time when, uh, you know, churches were differentiating. Uh, I sat inside those sillstones and was listening to this historical presentation, and I just thought I, I was asking God, or that I thought God was asking me to be a part of it. I thought I'm supposed to be a minister, and I kind of had that inclination Earlier in my life, when I was in seventh grade, a cross hit me on the head, a giant cross at a campfire at church. They had to call my mom and she said, well, maybe you're supposed to be a minister or something. You know, like maybe God's trying to get in touch with you. And I thought that was funny, but I kind of, you know, didn't even think about it again until I was a junior. So then I went to college at Eureka College with a scholarship for um, pre-ministry. And then I went to seminary at Lexington Theological, which is also a Disciples of Christ seminary. And uh, then served a church as a solo pastor for eight years before uh, eventually leaving to be my primary ministry, being motherhood for 10 years, and then came back to it through the Mennonite Church USA. So, and now I'm back to disciples. And yet, when she and her family found themselves in a different season of life, and they began attending a more evangelical church, she soon found out she was being treated much the same as Emily despite already having received her education and being ordained to ministry. It was, it was mostly encouragement until I left our denomination. So in 2008, I was pregnant with our third child, and my husband and I, I had been serving as a pastor of a small congregation. My husband and I moved back to my hometown, and he got an engineering job that would support the family, and I could stay home with our three kids. The church that I had grown up in was going through just a lot of issues. And I always thought that if I wasn't a Christian Church Disciples of Christ, I could be Mennonite, progressive Mennonite, Mennonite Church USA. So um, the one that was in our town was also having a crisis. And so we went to the one that was in the next town over. Well, two weeks later, they left the Mennonite Church USA. But we had had really positive experience there. And Honestly, I think I was just so spiritually hungry for um, a real interaction with Jesus, you know, that I wasn't manufacturing or I wasn't providing or whatever, that we ended up in this church that was an evangelical, they became independent evangelical. And this church, yeah, there, there was very much the question of whether I was qualified, whether they had decided at some point that women could not teach boys over the age of 13. And so I didn't know this until we were probably three or four months into that church. 
And by then, you know, we had friendships. And I thought, and what I was really impressed by was that they had had this discussion in the church and um, that a couple of the leaders had said, well, I don't agree with it, but I want to be in fellowship with this group, you know, so we can work past this. These leaders were all men, you know, retrospectively, I think about that. And I thought, wow, you were a moron for <laughs> thinking that that was okay. But the idea that you could argue about something theological and not be in agreement and still be in relationship was honestly something new to me. Yeah, that just wasn't an experience that I had had in churches. Most of the time in the churches that I served, if you had a theological disagreement, you left the church and went to a different church. You know, you didn't stay in fellowship with people. And so I thought that spoke really highly of what their priorities were. Now that I look back, I think that's probably not the case. <laughs> I think it was mostly that it didn't trouble them. And so they weren't willing to um, push on it. We were there for about a year and a half before we realized, before I realized. My husband is patient and kind and has always been able to find meaning in whatever religious experience he has. And so he's not the person who is in turmoil <laughs> about, uh, you know, teaching his children the wrong thing or whatever. And so, you know, he's always just kind of been willing to go where I was comfortable. You know, I grew up in a congregation that had a female associate minister. And there was never any question, females were elders, females were board chairs, females were science teachers, you know, or science teachers, I'm sorry, females were Sunday school teachers. There was never a question that the female mind could not comprehend what the male mind comprehended, or that the female spirit could not um, connect with the spirit of Christ in equally powerful ways as a male spirit could. And I've only served in churches. I mean, they called me to be their minister. So there was necessarily this uh, willingness to see my authority and to see me as someone who was set aside for this work. The only time I've ever experienced being dismissed for my gender was within the context of being not serving as a pastor when we were in those evangelical congregations. It was things like being in a Sunday school room and talking about, I was talking about how extraordinary it must have been um, for people who had no access to electricity to think of Jesus as the light of the world, you know, to think about the light that was not uh, manufactured by anything that was always present, like what an extraordinary idea that was. And I remember the pastor at the time said something about like, well, I wish, like, basically, I wish we would have had this conversation earlier, but I wouldn't have thought to ask you or something, like acknowledging that it wouldn't occur to him to throw these theological ideas around with a, a woman or me or, you know, I just, it was, it was a weird, it was a weird time. But then also I've been in meetings, church meetings and board meetings, where a well-meaning, very kind man has explained to me uh, how the churches function and, you know, church polity or church history or, you know, things that I actually have a degree in. <laughs> and there's been this question of, can she really comprehend this? You know, and I thought, I don't think they would have done that to a male minister. In fact, I've witnessed them um, speaking to 
a male minister without an education, without a master of divinity, in very different ways. And all these situations, they've known I was a minister. And yet there's still this sort of, um, it's like uh, a lack of comprehension about how someone, some woman could be a minister or could know these things with any sort of authority. Like in the case of the mansplaining one, I think I just just moved on. And I think probably the same with the the dismissive pastor. You know, I I really wish I would have called it out. Like I, I wish I would have recognized like the the mansplaining one was from a person who would be mortified if he realized that that was what he was doing, but I could have done that. You know, I could have said that in that moment. I think I would have appeared to be an angry feminist, which as I get older, I don't really care about whether that's my uh, how I'm interpreted or whether that's even my motivation. But, you know, I, I wish I would have said something. Both Joy and Emily shared similar experiences of being disrespected in a local church setting after being asked to preach to a congregation. I think the most dramatic was one of the first times I was ever asked to speak from a pulpit in a church. I'm, I'm not a minister by training, but because I do um, a lot of public speaking and, and speaking work, uh, I'm often invited to come to churches, to do conferences. And I was asked to speak on a Sunday morning and I had heard these things happening, but I had never experienced it. Um, where I got up to speak and I started to to open the sermon and a man and his family got up and walked out. I mean, clearly I was on the schedule. My name was there. You know, it wasn't. They were making a statement. And that was the first time that I realized that was for real <laughs> and and the complete dismissal of, of my voice. I will say there have been other moments. I, I probably 10 years ago would have told you I didn't really believe in things like microaggressions or, you know, things like that. But as I've grown in leadership positions, particularly in the evangelical sphere, um, I've worked in Christian higher education most of my um, career. I started out in government, um, which was a completely different experience, where there's subtle things, right? Like, I was told early on in my career, never get anybody coffee and never offer to take notes. And you would be surprised at how often somebody will lean over in a meeting and say, hey, could you go, could you go grab the coffee? Or would you mind being the one to take notes? And so I was thankful for that. But, but a lot of it is tonal things. So it's speaking to me like I'm the administrative assistant or uh, expecting the sort of mental labor to be done. And if you call people out on those things, they're immediately defensive. You know, so it's it's one of those where you're having to try to navigate um, the less explicit. So both very explicit, having somebody, you know, literally walk out as soon as I started speaking and and others, you know, more subtle. The good news is I am a trained public speaker who knows not to let things like that bother me. I tell my students all the time, you can get up, move around, do a bunch of things, and I probably actually won't even notice because I kind of get in a zone. I think the hard part in that moment was that it was right at the beginning, right? I hadn't hardly opened my mouth. And and for the most part, I think my heart just sank because, again, I didn't want to believe any of these things were real. I had heard these stories but I had always been encouraged by the people in my church, by my family, by the by the people who I had studied around. So, you know, I think I just sort of paused 
and kept going, trying to not let them see me sweat, <laughs> you know, as it were. There was there was another time where I had a woman come up to me and like rebuke me for having spoken. And I think that situation, I probably had a, a response where I wish I would have done something different. You know, I, I, I think I probably took it a little too personally and argued back with her about why the scripture she was quoting to me, I thought was wrong and take it out of context. And I realized in that moment, like, this was not a matter of, of argument. It was one of those, like, well, God told me, you know, well, so how are you supposed to, you know, argue with that? And and I wish in some ways I would have just blessed her and, and let her move on, you know, so you know, a couple of, couple of different responses. It often happens, thankfully, not from my professional colleagues. I, I can say that, you know, Wheaton College has been a, a wonderful place to serve. I feel very supported by my colleagues here. I've never encountered disrespect from them. But often when I'm when I'm speaking in churches or visiting someplace, uh, giving a lecture series or something, it's the comments afterwards that tend to be a little uh, surprising. I've had I had a, a woman say one time, I really, I really enjoyed your sermon, um, especially as a woman, because I just, I just don't think women can preach as well as men can. And, and that was, that was pretty good. <laughs> I was like, well, thank you. <laughs> that's, that's very nice. I have definitely had the experience of getting up to speak in a, in a church service. And there are clearly folks in the congregation who are surprised that there's a woman speaking on Sunday. And I've seen a couple, you know, people get up and leave because it just wasn't, it wasn't expected that I would be there. Those are probably the most immediate. I've, I've had what I call like benevolent sexism in academic conferences where certainly the intentions are good. There's no intent to be disrespectful, but where comments are made about my research or my you know theological work that it's not, you can tell they don't consider it serious because I'm doing, you know, women, women topics, uh, topics that are gendered feminine, and therefore it's not serious theological work. I, I love where I am. I love where I work. I'm in a, I'm in a very supportive um, space in terms of the administration um, here at Biola. They, they have been so good to me over the years. So I just want to preface everything with, with that. But, but Biola historically um, has been a complementarian institution. They were relatively cessationist um, for a season. And so when, when this job opportunity came up, I, I actually told my husband not to worry about moving to Southern California because I, I really didn't think it was going to go anywhere, especially once they, they got to my research work in, in women and leadership in the church. And, and I have been pleasantly surprised by just what a welcoming and a, an affirming community this has been for the most part. But I know that there are people who disagree with me. I know that the position of our seminary is different than the position I take in terms of the, if you want to call it the egalitarian complementarian divide. I am an advocate for these things. I never, ever believed that Biola would be a place that would um, promote my work the way that they have, but but they do. So it's it's sometimes it's an interesting tension to be in. But what I have become, and it's such a great honor, um, is a space where our young female students can come. Some of them who are pastoral ministry majors who come to me, 
you know, sort of in the dark of night, you know, where they don't want any official appointment that, you know, can I just come to your office? And, and then they'll say things to me, like, how do you survive here? How do you make it? And it's not necessarily because their professors themselves have been hostile towards them. That's very rare. It has, it has occurred, but, but it's very rare. But it's other students, it's it's their fellow, it's their peers in class who are allowed to sort of question and challenge them to, to rebuke them in some situations. And it's hard to know how to respond. You know, part of my job is, is to bring students here and to, uh, and to encourage them to stay here. And in a lot of ways, I can offer a space to walk with them in their journey. But there have been some students that I've said, you know, I just don't know that this is the healthiest place for you, where you are in your life and in your calling and other things that you've experienced. Perhaps this is a little bit of a uh, triggering or a trauma inducing space for you. And, and maybe it'd be better to have a place where you're going to be affirmed and, and you are, you know, you know, you're calling encouraged in those ways. Um, and that's tough. Those are tough conversations because that's not a part of my work. <laughs> you know, and part of my work is to say, here's why you should be here. And here's why you should be in this, in this space. And, you know, I have to learn to balance those things because again, it's not that there hasn't been difficulty here. There has, there has been, but, but I will say for the most part, the people who, I um, am accountable to have been incredibly supportive. And, and so it's, it's sometimes a, I don't know what you call it, maybe a, just a, a dissonant space, right? I'm so encouraged in so many spaces, but I've been so discouraged by some of the things I hear that, that I, that I know go on in, in the community and, and even some people's open, you know, open rebuke. Uh, I, I have moderated panels of egalitarians and complementarians and things like that. And, and I, you know, I've, I've just had people say, we know you're not neutral, <laughs> you know, and, you know, different things like that. So it's, it's a, it's a tough thing because, because I don't want to speak ill of, of the university in any way, shape or form, because it's, it's been a home and a very, a place for me to grow and develop my work, but, but it is work that's developed in a, in a bumpy context. After hearing these stories, I felt compelled to ask, what do you wish men would understand about what women have faced living within church culture? Here's what Abby had to say. I wish I could help them to understand how destructive their view of women can be. They are both my father and Eric, to a lesser extent, certainly Bishop Stewart, are very confident in their understanding of gender hierarchy and how they see that in the Bible. I would disagree with them. But I wish that they would be able to step back for a minute and see the destruction that their insistence on this interpretation of scripture has caused for women and not just women it's not like men escape from this unscathed either it's damaging to everyone here's joy's response yeah i i wish I wish men understood the mental gymnastics that a woman has to go through, the theological 
twists and turns that that you have to navigate. Nobody ever starts with Jesus. You know, you're you're immediately bludgeoned with Paul, right? As if as if Paul is the enemy and and for a long time I just thought I don't like this guy, you know, right? But but I wish men understood what it's like to start from that place where you are not coming into ministry or or the Christian context embraced. You're coming with a posture of being ready to defend. And and it's it doesn't have to be a defensive posture, right? That that's 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 a different tone again, tonal thing. But but you're prepared. You know, I've got my responses to Paul and I've got my reasoning for why Genesis does not have a separation between the genders until after the fall. I've got I've come armed with Ephesians 5:21, right? Not not just 22 and 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 beyond. Like you're ready. You you have to be. If you don't if you're not prepared to go into those spaces, you'll get eaten alive and and I wish that men understood the energy and the time and the exhaustion that goes into not knowing just how much of your humanity you're gonna have to put on the line to do what it is that God called you to do. Here's April's response. I think that men don't understand the incredible pressure on women where they are not allowed to um, become pastors, preachers, prophets, whatever. In those cultures, I don't think they understand the incredible pressure on women to suppress their gifts, to constantly question whether what they sense within them is from God or whether that's from their ego or, you know, some desire to, um, to seek attention or whatever. And, um, I don't think men have that at all. <laughs> I think uh, a young man who perceives that God is asking him to do something in those cultures can say, God is asking me to do this. And the people all say, oh, yeah, right. Good. Great. We'll pray for you. We'll support you. We will send you to your certificate program. <laughs> you know, like they won't they won't get their full master divinity. You know, they'll get a, a certificate in Bible something. You know, and there are women who, whose gifts are just summarily rejected just because of, you know, the extra chromosome <laughs> length. I wish that men understood that uh, women who are in that environment are, the ways that they are powerful is just a fraction of what they could be seeing. You know, that if they're seeing 10%, of the women's gifts and they think that they're amazing. Just imagine what would what would be revealed if they would allow that other 90% to show. This series was produced and recorded by me, Chris Marchand, with oversight from Stephen Backhouse. 
Thank you to all of my interviewees. Your stories are shaping and changing me. Our theme music is Deborah's Song by Rachel Wilhelm from her Mystery Canticles EP. I highly recommend you find her on any streaming platform or support her more directly on Bandcamp. Rachel Wilhelm, Deborah's Song. Please go listen. We are able to produce this podcast because of our Patreon backers. If you would like to support what we do, please consider becoming a Patreon subscriber for only $5 or £5 a month at www.patreon.com slash tenttheology. And there you will have access to numerous teaching series from Stephen Backhouse, extra interviews, and the potential for seasonal Zoom meetups. Thanks for listening. We hope you will join us next week for part two of Women in Leadership, where the subject is the scrutiny women face as leaders. Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page or leave a good review on whichever podcast platform you use to listen. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com.